Thank you for tuning in to the Baron K Martial Arts Podcast Show. Uh, we have a special guest today, which is Sam. Sam, welcome to this podcast. And if you want to talk more about the Sparta training from you. Well, I thought it would be interesting as last time we went over the Triple S mindset to do a little bit more on the Triple S training because the Spartan training in it itself was absolutely fascinating. I mean, they would get up at 5 a.m. Uh, the first thing they would do is they would go for a, a jog, as we would do in the modern day. So modern day boxing training, basically. Wake up, go for a jog when fasted. When they would come back, they would normally have roast pig and vegetables. Um, I've looked through hundreds of sources to try and find what they actually ate as in terms of like the actual food that they ate. And there's only about seven dishes that I can actually find. Um, they would, like the Greeks traditionally, they would have a lot of olives. They would have a lot of peppers. They would have a lot of lettuce, a lot of tomato, a lot of cucumber, a lot of pork. And for some reason, a lot of beef for Spartans in particular, which I found quite fascinating because beef would have been a real rarity uh, back in the early days. So the way that Spartan was organized um did they have like a training camp and then they had their local village or was the whole city basically one big training camp? Well, the whole city was a whole big camp, but you have to see it as in the Spartan society itself was militarized as an in and of itself, but they did have an area where the young recruits would go called the Agogi, which is herding or rearing, which is what they called it. And that's basically where everybody up until the age of 21 was trained. After the age of 21, um, you would literally be barracked for four months out of the year, which meant you would be with your squad or your platoon and you would basically live with them for four months. You get, I think, it, and then you have uh, four months um, safety, which is basically looking after your little village or hamlet or little fiefdom, which is quite interesting when you think about it because four months out of the year, it's training four months out of the year, standing army, four months out of the year, look after your own uh, borough or village, which is unique in the ancient world. There was a lot of traveling then, so they, they would move around quite a lot. Absolutely. But one thing um, that the Spartans did that most of the other Greek city-states at that time didn't do is that the Spartans would prefer to move everywhere on foot if they could, especially the over-21s. The under-21s would take any opportunity that they could for a rest, whereas the over-21s, it was a very machismo-based society. So I've walked longer than you. I've fought longer than you. These sort of things was like a real kudos in, in society. So you, you, in the modern day, you don't want to be the person to walk the extra mile. Whereas in Sparta, you would walk the extra mile and that would literally give you bragging rights. I've walked the extra mile. Like, where were you guys? There's something about walking outdoors as well, adapting your different terrain, going through, uh, you can imagine, rural areas and having that um, hardship and conditioning, conditioning for your whole body, really, on doing long walks. Exactly. Well, imagine the type of footwear they would be wearing. This is 460 uh, BC uh, for anyone that's listening. So the type of footwear isn't modern by any stretch of the imagination. It's primarily leather that's uh, been like hired and tanned that's wrapped around your feet when you get up in the morning. <clears throat> It couldn't have been comfortable. So minimalistic on the padding. But that develops uh, a different kind of walking posture, right? With um, the 
the minimal kind of like close the barefoot training you, you uh, I've, develop a different stride i've done some research on it apparently it's supposed to give you a lower center of gravity which is really good for like thrusting like spears and getting like a really good base to like repel like a shield wall coming at you but other than that i i don't really know too much about training barefooted yeah train with um shoes that don't have too much padding and you tend to uh because you don't have the comfort of that thick sole underneath your feet you tend to uh your foot you walk on the the balls of your foot a lot more uh you don't heel strike too much yeah i might be missing a trick then because at the moment i'm squatting with like very padded uh, trainers so maybe i should switch to a non-padded trainer because when you um have quite thick soles you don't have that much mobility in your ankle as well because the foot even if it's not very heavy it's very wide and it's very thick at the bottom so what you tend to do is that your your feet um your heel will touch the ground quite a lot and um you don't want to use your heel you want to avoid that you want to kind of like not tiptoe not not extreme as tiptoeing but your your feet you want them to lean forward a little bit you want to use your front part of your foot and then that trains the calf muscles quite a bit but at the same time that changes the entire posture so you move a lot lighter so you don't want to do heavy foot stomps all the way um if you're sprinting for the high performance competitions find that with the heavy thick soles it allows you to foot stomp and push and really drive forward but over long distances and long time you you might maybe want to like a a thinner sole uh just to promote using the front part of your feet so you tiptoe you go light and you become a bit more efficient um according to some barefoot minimalist you have less lower back pains you have less uh spinal injuries um because long long distance running you, you pick up a lot of injuries but you see the athletes training for long distance running they don't have too much uh, they, they're quite minimalist on the on the footwear. They don't have too much padding. Still, it's really hard. It's something that a lot more research has to go into. So every year you have these new reports, ongoing debate about whether fixed sole is better than thin sole. We don't really have a conclusion because it's so hard to to gather the right unbiased data, and it's different for everyone, right? That everyone yeah, it has would different be. injuries. That's right. They would probably be different on, on the type of foot as well. So if you flat foot as well, it probably has a different impact uh, on your on your shin and your calf muscles <clears throat> and the way you're stepping forward. But I've I've seen stuff as well, and I, I I'm a uh, advocate of barefoot walking. Uh, I'm not trying the training yet. I'm not trying the the heavy duty training like um uh, what we, we just talked about all the research out there. But barefoot walking certainly has an impact definitely gives you the strength and makes you feel agile and there's a um, dexterity if if that's the right word to use which is what barefoot walking gave me so you uh, want your foot to creep like an animal right you want to have the full range of motion and uh, back to your the issue if you have like flat-footed you have all sorts of issues then trying to correct it usually makes it worse because the body wants to lean towards a certain side so whereas um, they say that <clears throat> some shoes designed to counter certain issues makes those issues worse because your whole body is weighted towards correcting itself. And if you increase like, the thickness of one side, it just becomes completely unbalanced because the body's trying to correct something and you kind of promote the problem 
or you extend it to another side of your body. It, it's really hard to, to prove. It, it's just a theory. It's extremely hard to prove that without, without enough data. But what we do know is that Spartans, uh, as Sam was mentioning, they walked around a lot in minimalist shoes and they did quite well, I guess, traveling huge distances. Mm-hmm. Well, one of their training programs was also the fact that they would learn to, well, what we would call the modern day long jump. They would literally train that for like hours and hours and hours a day, primarily because it gives you the perfect, well, it gives you the perfect um, throwing posture for a spear. If you're learning to take like three leaps forward and then not do the, like not do the actual long jump part where they score it in the Olympics, but where you actually do the run up, which is absolutely amazing because they wouldn't actually practice it with like live spears. So they would literally just, you would see like maybe a hundred Spartans just lining up, just doing the movements, which is something that in the modern day, we would call that doing like sets. So the javelin throw, would that be quite a martial training method? Because it's basically throwing a really long spear, right? Yeah, it was in it. Yeah, it was in ancient Greece. That's where the javelin games like came from. Um, Greek city states would get together and they would compete: who could throw the discus the farthest, who could throw the javelin the farthest, whose messenger could reach the other palace before the other messenger. Yeah, because javelin was like widely practiced in ancient Greece and like it became an Olympic game. Uh, I mm-hmm. think around seven seven hundred BC, but even before then, you could really see the. the practical purposes of throwing a long stick you could use it to kind of go over walls right you could scale walls with them so yeah exactly you can get on the top of the wall with that stick or or you can just throw spears and just be useful to throw a spear well the romans who eventually took over for the greeks um in like warfare shield walls and um actual like fighting technique like the Romans used the long spear primarily because the fact that if their engineers needed to create, um, let's say you needed to create a, a shield tower or a ballista, or you wanted to create some kind of engineering feat to cross a river, the long, the long spears are incredibly thick wood. They're incredibly like long based on like what the average spear would have been for the time. So you can literally just strap two, 300 spears together and you have yourself a, a flimsy walkway, but a walkway nonetheless that you can then build on top of to create ramparts, ballistas, moving siege engines, for example. Must be quite heavy to carry then. And you mentioned earlier that they're mostly traveling by foot and on horses, right? So everything's just manual labor. Yeah, well, the Spartans were quite lucky in the fact that um, the only things that a Spartan warrior would actually carry himself would be his helmet, his, uh, his shield, his sword, and his spear. All other equipment would be brought to the battlefield by helots, which are Spartan slaves, who sometimes, if the slave was extremely lucky, they would be you know, on a wagon or on a donkey carrying stuff. If they're extremely unlucky, they'll be walking behind the Spartans carrying more equipment than the Spartans would be. Logistics dealt with by a different department. And exactly. The department is just purely for combat. So that focus could be clear on that. Exactly. The logistics is left down to the slaves. The fighting is left to the spot. Oh, that's pretty. Uh, I didn't know that. So, well, uh, you have to remember the slaves didn't want the Spartans to lose because if the slave, because if the Spartans lost, then the slaves would also be killed. <laughs> Better the devil you know, as it were. Hmm. So Matt traveled uh, 
long distances and it's um, at the service. Did you have any um, uh, kind of like uh, experiences carrying quite heavy loads and did you find that a bit of a benefiting? I think uh, training with weight can be beneficial. Walking with those kind of loads is more, it's more injury prone to giving injuries than anything else. Um, obviously needs must though, if you need to carry the, your equipment to wherever it needs to be. So you kind of build endurance, but at the same time you get all these tendon damage, don't you? From weighted training. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's not something I think you could go straight into. We obviously build up to it over the course of training and stuff like that. And, and we, we regularly walk with sort of like lower weights and try and keep the heavier weights for when we sort of need to or when we're on exercises and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, I know certainly throughout the years anyway, it's just getting heavier and heavier, the equipment that you have to carry. What time would you have to wake up in the morning when you was in the service, Matt? It just depends on uh, on what we was doing that day. An average day would be, we, we would start at about 8 o'clock. So just like a normal day, really. That's not too bad. You hear horror stories in the ancient world of troops being roused at like 3 a.m. to like do drills and manoeuvres and then are told at like half past five. Nope, the enemy's not here yet. You can go back to bed. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people, you hear about things like the Navy SEALs and stuff like that. They have a sort of routine of getting up at half four and things like that. I don't really know why. <laughs> You've got enough time in the day. To be honest with you, I get up earlier now, you know, now, um, since I've left, I get up earlier. But that's, that's simply insane. because I need to, um, you know, it used to be I would turn up for work at eight and the first thing we would do is go to the gym. Now, obviously, my work wouldn't be happy if I did that. So I need to go to the gym before work. So I have to get up even earlier. That's the triple S, my- that's the triple S mindset right there. The discipline, yeah. But back, back in ancient times, I presume people slept a lot earlier as well, right? They, yeah. They kind of sleep at sunset. So well, like 8 in- p.m. would be like midnight for them. or be late in the night, be deep in the night. Kind of. The average Spartan day would finish around about half past two in the afternoon so from half past two in the afternoon like if you was past the age of 21 and you wasn't in the agogi then you would go home you was literally expected to make like in china the same way that they had the one child rule in sparta they literally had the three child rule which is one spartan man one spartan woman must make three spartan children that's the way sparta will grow which you can't argue with their maths but yeah as Kay was saying like um about four, five, six o'clock in the evening, especially in the winter, that would have been it, basically. You would have been indoors, um, literal, like, candles on or, like, burning uh, wood and just doing nothing. Whereas in the summertime in Greece, the sun doesn't go down until about half past nine which gives you a lot more time to like reap in the harvest that like you've like plowed in and stuff. But yeah, still an extremely difficult lifestyle to live when you have to think about it. I read that um, the ancient Greeks, they used to do rope climbing, part of the military exercise, like all military regimes around the world. Oh yeah. Even the Spartans, it was, um, it was a massive thing. uh, The rope climb. It's one of the reasons why we still have it in like, schools today all around the world it's recognized everywhere as 
well being well it's kind of a pull up slash chin up at the same time so it really does develop absolute like core muscles it develops good lats good traps it's just an all-round great exercise and the fact that they knew to do this like 500 bc 460 bc is incredible matt did you ever do rope climbing or it's just part of a obstacle course a small part of it oh we do we do loads of rope climbing um yeah we we learn we learn that sort of like from early on um as a way of i suppose getting into getting into places so one of the original um ideas for the commando um during world war ii was that they would attack from their cliffs so obviously the enemy would would set up set up on the edge of the cliff and they would defend all the land around them but they wouldn't really defend the cliff because it's it was seen to be impassable but then the the world war ii commandos would obviously assault up that cliff so rope climbs are still a big part of our training even now and then you you sort of build up until you get onto um the second part of year of physical training which is called bottom field which is like the outside kind of assault course bit which is where you then have to start doing rope climbs but with all your belt kit and stuff which weighs 21 pounds and a rifle Okay, that's way to training there. So do you have little knots throughout the rope? Or is it a straight rope? Because it makes a big difference, right? Having the little knots a, in, it's like a ladder. Just a straight rope. We did that oh, one. Gosh. It's all, uh, there's a lot of sort of grip strength, especially between your thighs and stuff like that, it, you know, gripping it with your legs and your feet. But uh, it's, as you were saying about um, rope climbs being great, all body, you know, the grip strength as well. That's, that's one thing I think. Obviously, pull-ups are great for grip, but ropes are even better, I think. There's there's a movie scene in James Bond for your eyes only. It is one of the older James Bond movies, and he's showing like the skill of like climbing outside a mountain, and he knows how to use his feet to kind of like make a loop and push himself up. Do you mm. do that as well? It's not just your arms, isn't it? You use your legs quite a bit. We don't make a loop, but we do grip it. Yeah, it's it's massively with your legs, so you grip on, like I say. You sort of feed it down between your legs, between your your calves, and between your feet as well. You try not to step on the rope, but um, but yeah, it's it's a lot of grip, a lot of core strength as well, because you want to lift your legs up as high as possible before you start. So so you're making less movements up the rope. You don't want to be making loads of little movements. You want to make a couple of big ones and just get to the top as quick as you can. When you drill it, do you go one by one, or do you have several guys on the rope? No, it's just one by one. Oh, just one by one. Yeah. But then we, we have like a whole bank of ropes. There's like, I think there's five ropes in a bank and then there's, there'll be three banks in the gym. So there's a load of people going at once, but just one person to a rope. The most nasty experience I've had is when you come down and you're lazy or you don't have enough strength and you just want to slide down. That yeah. rope just takes off all the skin in your palm. It's like your hands just get completely bloodied up. I've seen it a few times because like uh, a lot of the circuits we do in the gym are like, uh, so they, they do a thing called a camp circuit where basically you run out the gym, you run around the edge of the camp and you come back. I think it's about a quarter of a mile. So we were, we were doing this gym session one day and it was like, you would do a rope climb, then you would do a camp circuit, then you'd do a rope climb, then you'd do a camp circuit. I think we did that about five or six times. And obviously by the end, you, you know, your arms are blowing out, you, you're knackered. Some people were getting like three quarters of the way up and then they just lost all their strength and just slid back down again. And yeah, their, their hands were not in a good way. 
on the rope climbing with the body weight and the kind of calisthenics, I know rope climbing is not part of calisthenics, but Sam, do you know if the Spartans use a lot of calisthenics, like push-ups, pull-ups, climbing, more than kind of bodybuilding exercises? Well, the Spartans were very big on hiking. They were very big on... Well, one of the good things that you see in the 300 movie is that you see the Spartans literally build a wall using um, rocks from the cliffside and the bodies of the dead Persians, which they did actually do. But that was literally an exercise for the Spartan military. They would literally march out, um, march out three days away. They would camp every night along the way. And then when they got there, their general or their king would literally tell them, all these rocks need to go here. Build a wall. We need a wall built in six hours. Go. And then they would do it. You would have three or four Spartans moving like one rock in unison. And you would have, imagine 5,000 Spartans doing this all at once. You would clear a massive area of rocks and you would literally make like pathways snaking in and out. It's one of the reasons why the, why the pass um, at Thermopylae called the Hot Gates. The Hot Gates now, the sea has really, really uh, pulled back a lot. So you don't get the actual like suffocation, like the suffocating, like narrow pass that the Spartans made. But they made that by using a massive rock wall, rock wall on one side and using the cliff edge on the other side. And that was purely through engineering because they got there six days before the Persians did. For your own training, do you use calisthenics or you use more kind of gym with the, with the weights and the machines and the weighted equipment? I do go hiking every now and then, though it's difficult in London. Though I do like to like go around uh, Wanstead Flats, is just around the corner from my house. So I love to have a hike around there, ponds, little hills, and stuff like that. But mainly, I just do a lot of press ups, sit ups, uh, weight training, and of course martial arts. So um, for the martial art combat side, did, are there any historical records showing that how Spartans fought? If they actually well, did any sparring or boxing or grappling. We know that they would spar with uh, wooden swords and wooden shields. We have some records, only fragmented records of uh, this person was injured on this date while sparring with this person. Uh, we know that the Spartans were very big on what's called catch wrestling, which is you get someone in a submission, then you let them go immediately, and then you go back into it. Um, from standing, obviously, um, the Greeks wouldn't roll off of their knees or like off of their backs. They would class that as like disrespectful so they wouldn't start on the ground like you have in brazilian jiu-jitsu they would start on their feet yeah they would always start on their feet they would start with both hands touching so imagine if you're doing like a, a patty cake type of thing they would start with both hands touching and both hips facing the other person it's like a game of knuckles exactly perfectly put <laughs> And that's how it would start. And then a little drum would start beating. And then as soon as the first drum beat happens, that's when you can start moving. We see some of those ancient stone statues, right? Of, of grappling and wrestling moves. Yeah, uh, wrestling and grappling itself was massive in uh, ancient Greece. One of the things that um, every man should be in ancient Greece is every man should be able to defend himself and defend his loved ones. Being an intellectual or someone who's purely in the realm of books was considered a noble thing, but it wasn't considered a wise thing in ancient Greece. It was considered to be a good orator, which is a good speaker, and it was considered good to be like um, a strong protector. Yeah, I read that um, Aristotle and Plato, Plato, Aristotle, mm -hmm. Aristotle and Plato, they, they were both into wrestling. 
Oh yeah, um, philosophers like Aristocrats, the rich people of the time would literally want to be good at wrestling because that's what the masses did. And whatever the masses did, the rich people would want, would want to be the best at it. It's just like today, really. You get like the sons of like the rich Saudi billionaires who are all training to be MMA fighters now, which is an incredible thing to see. I never thought I would see it. Matt, you, you did more kind of um, hiking in your, your training, isn't it? Like sparring and wrestling, grappling for modern military standards. They're, they're really not used anymore. No, we do a bit in training. We do a couple of sessions in training, but obviously that's only sort of like the first nine months of your career. <laughs> and it's very basic kind of stuff. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of it after that. A lot of people do it off their own backs. You know, they, they go and do the Brazilian jiu-jitsu and stuff like that. But uh, as a as a teaching thing, not not so much, no. But then again, I mean, if you're wrestling with someone in the modern day, it would be good to know it just in case you had to. But if something's gone wrong, if you are really. Yeah, absolutely. I could see how if a commando is wrestling somebody, then you're already, you're already up the creek without a paddle. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got too close at that point, I think. Exactly. <laughs> Better a knife to the windpipe than like try put him in a freaking sleeper hold. That's it, yeah. But yeah, well we've got the commando dagger, that's what that's for. It's uh, specially designed for doing exactly that. So apart from hiking, what other training methods would you do we have? Do we know of uh, any research or historical records of what, what other methods they used in their training? Well the the Spartans would do um rock tossing. It's the equivalent of, have you seen the Scottish uh, log th uh, uh, throwing competitions? Tossing the K-bar. Exactly. Tossing the K-bar. Well, the Greeks had a very primitive version of that where they would get rocks that roughly were the same height and the same weight. And they would have five people line up. And the rock was light enough for you to pick up and throw it, but heavy enough for it to, if you got like three meters, for example, that was considered a big day. That's, whoa, K got three meters. Did you hear? So, um, yeah, they would play that. A lot, a lot of the, um, of the Spartan, like, um, rank and file in the military, they would play a game that we don't know what it was called, obviously, because 460, like, BC. But it was basically an accuracy game. Imagine darts where they would take the spears off of their tips, like they would take the tips off of their spears they would create a massive circle in the ground and they would literally like stand about 40 to 50 feet away and they would try and hit the bullseye. Oh, so it's not just throwing it far, you have an actual aim, actual target. Yeah, there's, pl there's plenty of Spartan poetry about like literally like on the way to a battle. They've stopped off at a river, they've <laughs> set up this game and this one person's won the game and sadly he was killed in battle. It really annoys me that I forget the person's name. If you look at a lot of the original Olympic Games, obviously that originated in Greece, didn't it? You look at things like the hammer throw, the shot put, the javelin. I mean, these are all things that... Are, discus. Dis, yeah, there you go, yeah. These are all things that, you know, could, practically could be used in battle, especially using these ancient weapons and stuff like that. So it's kind of strength, but it's also dynamic as well, right? It's not like a slow bodybuilding strength, but you have to add some kind of like practical output to 
to the strength. Yeah, I, I could imagine, uh, you know, obviously I, I don't know anything about what they used to do, but a lot of the functional fitness or functional strength, you know, we used to do a lot of circuit training and stuff like that, where it wasn't just, you know, trying to do a bench press or something like that, lateral movements. It was more about, like I say, this more of a functional strength with, uh, with some fitness worked in as well. You, you is a compound exercise that you, you use the whole kinetic chain. You drive yeah. from your feet and it goes all the way down a hand. It's not just how strong your biceps or triceps are alone. Exactly, yeah. And we used to do something as well. We used to do it. We used to try and do it every Friday, but we used to do um, called it battle fizz. So that would be in in full, you know, dress basically trousers, boots. Um, sometimes we would have like our belt kit and stuff like that as well. But we would use a lot of logs, tires, you know, big heavy boxes. Just things that are difficult to carry, basically, and we would work them into circuits and do sprints and things like that. I think they're they're all they're all good things for. I don't know how you you would have called it back then, but nowadays they call it like the tactical athlete. Yeah, that word is a bit. Um, that a lot of people say that's misleading. What what tactical constitutes of? What constitutes tactical? Um, it when when it looks quite functional. Then, yeah. then they used the word tactical, but then what 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 is functional or not? That's also up for debate, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. It depends what you're what you're trying to do, I suppose. You know, if you're a if you're a power lifter, then the bench press probably is the most functional exercise for you to be practicing. Yeah, the push depends what function you're trying to. Yeah, um, if a big get big better. car or a big boulder as in, in the way, then you want to push that out of the way. Then it's quite functional, be really strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Sam, you were saying um, the poetry, uh, um, the little game they used to play. Yeah, <clears throat> they would basically have a game of darts, which was um, laid flat against the floor, and they would take off the tips of their spears. They would stand roughly 12 to 15 feet away, and they would literally just try and hit a bullseye. There's a very famous piece of Spartan poetry when they're on their way to a battle. Um, this particular warrior, he wins the game of accuracy, but he dies in the battle. And on the way back, the Spartan poet makes up a fantastic um, poem, basically, for, for, for this guy's family. Basically saying, like, what a hero he was. Not only was he accurate, but he had basically the courage to die for you and your family and Sparta. Which I find just amazing. So equivalent now would be like, oh, sorry, you, your, your son's died in battle, but they take a lot of pride in that and on the way to the battlefield he won a game on playstation and he did so well he got the highest score on PlayStation exactly on yeah the way there. that would literally be it like on the way to the battle your son kicked all of our asses on call of duty and then he died for us in the battle i mean you could you get a nicer guy it really would make your day <laughs> exactly do you do you find um there's a practical benefit in training outdoor terrain because all this hiking and those all this outdoor um, activity, do you find the conditioning of the whole body through being outdoors for an extended period of time that does something like, physically to you? I think definitely you have to train in the area that you're going to be competing in. If you're going to be competing like the Spartans was on the battlefield, which the battlefield could be in the mountains, could be in the fields, could be on the beach, you need to train in all of these places. I'm quite lucky and fortunate. The only place that I fight in are boxing rings and MMA cages they rarely change. Imagine if an MMA cage was, I don't know, it had ice on the floor one week and the next week it had sand. 
it would confuse us. We, we would be baffled. <laughs> so yeah, training where you're actually going to compete is a major, major leg up. I would say to take that one step further and train somewhere harder than where you're going to need to perform. So we, we would quite often use, obviously, the mountains of Scotland, which, which is a great area to, to train in because it's some really difficult terrain. And you would hope it wouldn't be as bad as that. Yeah, that's, that's even more hardcore. Do you find you get ill a lot less when you're training outside in the rain? Because normal people, you get, you get cold, you get common, cold, common flus a lot more in, Matt will in have cold conditions. Well, I mean, I, I'm not a great example because I've got COVID right now, but <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. It's hard to tell, really. I suppose you, you learn to just ignore it because it doesn't matter, you know, if you're ill, you're not going to tell anyone, are you? Because what they're going to say, oh, yeah, don't worry, we'll get you back indoors. It's just not going to happen. So you just learn to just get on with it, I suppose. One thing gonna... I will say, though, is that if you are going to train outside and it's cold, wrap up warm. If you are going to train outside and it's hot, take some hydration with you always be prepared like for what you're training for like never for example go on a 10k run in the middle of summer and don't have water on you you're just training to fail always train for success outside in the wilderness and ancient times i guess you have to have the survival skills to look for resource look for river, uh, river streams and look for food and be able to gather food outside Absolutely. That would have been taught to you like before the age of seven by just your mum and dad. Just walking through the forest, like a kid goes to like pick a mushroom, slap the kid's hand. Don't eat that type of mushroom. This mushroom's black. This mushroom like could be like poisonous. We only eat the yellow mushrooms. I wonder if survival back then was uh, slightly easier simply because it was almost a part of everyday life anyway. You know, something that we need to be taught now because everything's on hand. We just go to the supermarket and you know, we've got an oven at home and stuff, whereas they would, it was much more just a part of everyday life anyway. I think you've got a big point there, yeah. I think you're bang on the money. They probably were a lot better at it as well. It's, you know, these things are perishable skills. If you don't practice them, they do go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is and, so true. And very we're so much, yeah, we are so much pampered now, aren't we? We're so much, we have so many creature comforts, right? And even what you're saying earlier, Sam, about uh, sort of going out there when it's cold, I think maybe we want to adopt sort of Wim Hof sort of style of um, training out there in the cold, you know, where he goes out just in his shorts in the, in, in the um, uh, snow out there. I'm not sure if you've uh, um, seen his videos, Wim Hof, yes. the, yes, the Steve, ice man. Yes, yeah, Steve Wim Hof, yeah, he's the guy who, um, he basically runs uh, barefooted in just a pair of shorts. And um, he's done something ridiculous. Like, I'm not sure. I don't want to take anything away from his fame, but I think he's done about 28 marathons. Yeah. Plus all of this running in the freezing cold tundras. I know he's climbed uh, Kilimanjaro in shorts. I think he's done it barefooted as well. Possibly, yeah. I think it was just shorts. (laughs) No footwear or anything. Yeah, some some guy. I I was actually, just to go off on one, but... um, I was listening to a podcast with him on it and he was telling the story about how he was trying to swim underwater. I think it was 50 meters under the ice. So they dug a hole, you know, obviously, and then dug another hole 50 meters away. They had divers in and everything else just in case. And he said he swam and he missed the hole. And and the way he explained it was so funny. He said, oh, it, it was really funny. Um, I couldn't see the hole because my eyeballs froze. <laughs> it doesn't sound what? that funny to me. 
But yeah, he ended up swimming about 100 metres, so he broke this world record by, by loads, by accident. That's insanity. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, Wim Hof is a living legend. He does a lot of other training as well. It, like, with his main training of breathing, uh, ice water, he does like yoga and he does some qigong as well, which is like part of kung fu. The, the breathing methods, the internal breathing, but it, the breathing with the internal work. Yeah. Well, talking about like training in different weathers um, and like climates, like the Spartan like kids who would join the Agogi up until they were 21, they was only given one cloak per year. And I don't know if you guys know about Greece, but six months out of the year, they have what's called a monsoon or a rainy season. So literally go to any Greek island, the months where it's not expensive to travel there, there's a reason because it just pours down with rain all the time. So imagine wearing basically the equivalent of shorts, some leather wrapped around your feet, and you've only got a cloak, one cloak for summer, for winter. And that cloak would often be used as bedding if you was out in the field as well. Yeah, it makes your body really tough. That's like the Wim Hof method. Exactly. cold all the time. When you get wet, your body temperature, it, you, do, you do struggle with the cold like that. They say when you run in the rain, you catch a cold a lot easier. Anytime that I run in the rain, I wrap up extremely warm. Plus, I normally wear like a woolly hat as well. Matt, you just get used to that then, like having your clothes wet all the time and being wet clothes for a long, long period of time. I think you definitely can get used to it. I think it's something that goes away again as well. Um, I, I've started doing that. The well, it was about I've been doing it for about two years now. That I've been having a cold shower every day, you know, based on uh, Wim Hof. Yeah, it was, it was same the, here. And it, I, I could recommend that to anyone. It's it's great. It's something easy that anyone can do. It's not. It's maybe not so easy at first, but you do get used to it. You definitely do get. And I don't feel the cold anywhere near as much as uh, as other people I know up up here in Scotland, even Scottish people. You know, it triggers yeah. the kind of recovery, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, I, I believe it reduces like the. Um, uh, inflammation in your body uh, releases toxins as well um, from what I heard and there's there's loads of doctors out there now uh, recommending this you know at least start you know with with one minute and build it up and that's that's what I do as well I only I only manage two minutes by the way <laughs> yeah I'm about the same but but it it's just like it you, I say you get used to it now I don't feel good if I don't do it like I'm almost I've gone past the point of being used to it and I actually like it now. You guys are insane. I can't do that. Try it. I, I try guess it. I save a lot of time though because I'll, I'll get in the shower and out of the shower really quickly. <laughs> I have a hot shower <laughs> first. <laughs> yeah. Sam, do you know if the Spartans did any kind of like martial art that we know of, apart from the grappling, like, would it be all just spear fighting with a shield and they do drills and marches with that? Yeah, it would all just be like sets and like forms with like sword and shield movement. So the same way that you would do like rackers in like um, karate now or like forms where it's like block, step, kick, step, step backwards, bow, end of form. They would have like a very similar thing where it would be parry, block, thrust, step backwards, take the sword out of the opponent's chest, wipe the sword away. Block with a shield, thrust with the sword. It was so important with their um, kind of, I don't know if it's a to say fighting style or their style of battle anyway. 
for them to be completely synchronized though, wasn't it? Exactly. Um, the Spartans themselves were one of the first like major armies to use music. They would use um, flutes to tell the army literally which way to turn or which way the enemy was trying to encircle them, which gave them a massive leg up. If you're thinking about other armies are having people on horses running around screaming at people. If you just hear one flute note, you know, right, turn right. If you hear another flute note, turn left, another note, straight forward. And with it being that that's their sole job as well, I can imagine that's just second nature to them as well. Oh, exactly. Like, when you think about it, you get thrown into the agogi by the time you're seven. You Like, this music, like, this musical pattern would have been drilled into you by the time you was, let's just say, 12. So by the time you become a full Spartan warrior, which is what they were called when they reached the age of 21, it would be better than second nature to you. It it You would know the flute music more than you would know your own mother's voice at that point. That's something I think is, is still important. If you look at modern day martial arts and stuff like that, I mean, you think of it when, when you're fighting, if you're having to think about your next move too much, it's just not going to happen, is it? It needs to be, you need to have drilled it so much that it's second nature in the same exactly. way. Exactly. You need that muscle memory, which is probably what they had, but probably hearing memory. So they probably didn't even think time to turn right. It's just that musical note, their body automatically just turns the way that the note is instructing them. They got the cover of each other as well. I guess with um, the modern weapon fighting or modern martial arts, you don't really get to practice that. The way they fight in a unit, you're covered by the, the comrade next to you. So yeah, in the phalanx, yeah. Yeah, so the, the rhythm, uh, you can kind of choreograph it without thinking. It could kind of be like a mechanical efficient motion going forward exactly well you want it to look like i've i've read it explained like you want it to look like a war rhino is in the middle and you want to make it look like the shields are the armor of the war rhino does that make any sense so the armor moves around the animal not the animal moving around the armor Imagine if you have a circle of men and each man has their, has their shield up to the outside of the circle. What you don't want is those men running around inside of that circle to help each other. What you want is the shields to be moving around in a circle. Because if you block the person to your right, then the person to your right is blocking you. The discipline must have been so important because you get one person messing that up and, and it's almost like a chink in the armor then, isn't it? It's not yep. synchronized exactly but that would be drilled out of them because that would be the highest form of um the highest form of messing up in the agogi was to let your opponent side through your lines we literally have like text of like boys being killed at the age of like 18 19 nearly fully fledged spartan warriors and they've made a mistake in like a training exercise and the person that's overseen their training has just gone nope you've learned nothing just throw him just throw him off the cliff It's quite a bit harsher than my training. Exactly, but look at the alternative. As soon as, as soon as like one of the, as soon as one of the phalanx lines is broken, every other line is going to collapse. It's going to, it'll be a domino effect. If if one person isn't covering like one person, like humans are selfish with their lives. They'll take back their shield from their right and they'll place it over themselves. 
And if everyone in the army does that, then there's going to be one spot in the wall where the enemy can just run for it. Mm. <clears throat> be that close-knit unit, that old structure. Was there anything else that we knew about them in their, their training then? Not really. We knew that they would love to show off. We knew that they loved a one-liner. Um, war poetry for the Spartans after the battle. Always about the fallen. Never about, I was so brave that I came back alive. That was that was dishonorable to a Spartan. I was so brave that I came back. You would say, like, my friend was so brave, like, he died in front of me. Like, you have no idea the bravery. Like, his neck was, like, cut and his arm was cut off and not a, not a scream left his lips. That's how brave this man was. Yeah, I guess that really resembles the samurai spirit quite a lot. The, the celebration of the sacrifices. Uh, and to die in battle, they have that honour rather than to, to, to run away uh, and come back. That'd be a lot less honourable. Um, the samurais, will, they, they're quite famous for their seppuku as well, right? So they come back as a loser. They can't live with that shame. So they, they can end their own lives. It's part of what the small sword is used for. So they carry a long katana, that carry a much shorter sword. And they, they use that short sword a lot less in battle. It wasn't very efficient to use in battle, but that's if they kind of lose the, if if they lose for themselves, they they can't live with that shame and they just take their own life. Is this something which is referred to as harakiri? This is what I've been, uh, which which is what I studied. Yeah, it's basic. The harakiri is basically like the modern day version of the sabuku. Okay. It's basically the same thing. I think it's just two different words from two different <clears throat> points in time. Yeah, like so, ale was considered beer, and beer is considered ale. So, so samurais fought in quite a different way to how Spartans fought. So, um, the Spartan always with that shield and spear, uh, and that spear is like so big that they can block arrows with it. With the mm -hmm. way that samurais fought in ancient times, they're actually a lot more on horseback. So, the go-to weapon is the bow and arrow uh, for most of Asia's um, armies. Uh, Far East Asia, they they usually fight more with bones, uh, bone arrow, not so much with um sword, spear. They're usually on cavalry, on horseback, and they ride and they shoot arrows. So you still have that tradition today where they'd ride ride past the target. There is a sport, and there, there's a target. There's move, uh, and you you'd be moving, and as you go past it, you land an arrow at close distance, and then you'd be moving away. Close distance as in it's it's really hard to fire when you're actually on a moving kind of surface like so i'm not sure matt if you ever shot uh, if you fired at any target as well in, in the car or something or back of the car or anything like that yeah yeah it's uh it's difficult uh, do you just spray it and just hope that it lands it's more like a machine gun spray no there's a, there is a technique to it it's almost it's a bit like um you know, if you're firing at a, a target that's moving left to right, and then obviously you try and fire just slightly in ahead of it. Um, if you're moving, then you just do the opposite. So you fire just slightly behind it. It's, uh, but but then it, obviously if you're moving and so are they, then you've got to try and work it out. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it obviously makes it more difficult, but but there is um, there is ways of doing it. It's a lot on timing then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to just time that. So yeah, the samurais were more. Um, favoring on, on the actual battlefield, they're more on the um, bow and arrow, they're more firing arrows out at moving targets. So they, they train a lot on horseback uh, and they'd be on a horse 
going past shooting targets, uh, um, stationary targets. And th- there was a time where uh, they trained with animals as well. So they, they'd capture like, loads of wild animals and they'd, they'd let them out on the forest. And their training was to hunt them, hunt this, these little animals that they let out. And uh, there's one of the Shogun's <clears throat> era found that to be a little bit cruel because they used dogs as well. So they actually banned the killing of dogs in Japan. That you're allowed to shoot at the other animals, but dogs they found that too cruel. So uh, mm. you, you can't really fire at dogs. You could still fire at slaves, at people. Sorry. <laughs> That's insane. That's insane. Yeah. Oh, that I was one. just about before you said that. I was just about to say what makes an animal, what makes it cruel or not? What's the difference between a dog and say I don't know, a pheasant, which we still hunt today. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, well, if you're shooting at people, I suppose. Well, pheasants are tastier, Matt. You know what I mean. <laughs> I've never tried a dog, so I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. So firing at little animals, uh, that bow and arrow was used a lot more than sword fighting because it's just not. Um, it's it's practical to use a sword, but at close quarters, you're usually in trouble, aren't you? So you more more spear fighting. They have like uh, these pikes that you'd use so you could actually attack your opponent while they're on horses and drag them down and actually spear the horse as well on swords you're really in trouble that's like your final go-to weapon so swords are more like sports fighting one to one versus one duels a samurai did have duels general versus general so for uh, uplifting the morale the, the two sides would stop with a samurai versus samurai two groups of samurais the general can call for a one one versus one duel so they'll jump off their horses and then there'll be a sword fight. Then there'll be the, the normal kendo stuff. But samurais trained in sword fighting way before kendo was was invented. Although like, I'm referring to modern kendo, the way the sports one is. Uh, swords, swordsmanship has always been around, probably older than the samurais. No one knew how when the swords were invented. So you, you always had like sword fighting. Uh, the samurai training, they did favor a lot more martial arts. So you had jiu-jitsu, but not the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You had jiu-jitsu looked a lot more like karate, ancient jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. So you have like strikes, you have takedowns, you have some uh, submission moves. Um, punches and kicks were a lot more for training the way you do push-ups and squats. So punches and kicks a lot more for your physical training uh, and uh, kind of your <clears throat> strength conditioning. But takedowns, and grappling were a lot more practical for the battlefield. Because if you have armor, you're, covered, you're fully covered in armor. And the samurai armor, they even had their faces covered. So there's not really much point to do punching and kicking on armored soldiers, on horses. But the takedowns and the grappling move, that was a lot more useful, where you can take them down and you can slit their throat with your katana or any weapons that you have. So samurai training... Uh, similar time ancient time everyone wake up at 4 a.m 5 a.m uh samurais have like ceremonies as well they they do their meditation they do their praying not sure if spartans did any meditation or the spartan meditation was kind of on their hike they kind of like train their mind while moving on the hike well we know that they would like do like throat singing um, when on their hikes, which is the modern day, like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. We knew that they would like hum, but we don't have like, um, obviously like any recorded music of what they would hum. But yeah, like the, 
the Spartans wanted to die. For them, dying in battle was the best thing ever. So I could fully imagine them singing like songs of like, um, they're going to be dining with like the gods and goddesses of their time, like while they're on their way to battle. That sounds like something they would do. Yeah. I mean, summarize that they're chanting, that they're singing as well. That it goes by the unit. Some units don't favor singing. They don't like any forms of entertain- uh, entertainment. They prefer like more for strict martial discipline. And they were quite silent. Uh, it goes unit by unit. And which class you're in, some, some units uh, speaking, talking a lot wasn't favored. Uh, I think Spartans were quite similar. Like you, they would have their poetry, but they don't. They don't talk a lot of nonsense. They don't, don't mm-hmm. talk a lot of rubbish, unless they kind of earn a more senior rank to do that. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, so summarized did that as well. They 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 did a lot of meditation, strict training. It didn't seem that I got too much on uh, from my research that it didn't seem like they did too much hiking. I think armies just move. They move around, but I don't think they did too much hiking they were more on horseback uh and the the sword fighting it, it is part of the weapons training but their weapons were mostly on a horse bow and arrow that was the efficient way uh quite similar to how mongols did it it's kind of a hit and run approach where to fire an arrow ride off and then land another arrow so mostly ranged attacks and if it's close up then be using their their long spears not not so much like hand to hand sword fighting and punches and kicks again is out of the question. Um the the way you train swords I notice is that you don't have to be too big or strong for that. So it's more speed for for weapons, even with the pikes and the, the swords. It's one swipe can finish a fight very quickly. If you swipe someone, a, a hit that lands, your opponent can be in quite a lot of trouble. So it's more so um, how fast you can make a sword swipe rather than how strong you are physically. So I don't, don't think I've seen any records of uh, samurais doing weights or push-ups. There weren't records of that. They could have been doing that. But it, it wasn't so much on bodybuilding or, or the conventional gym exercises. Yeah, it, so- it sounds like the samurais focus more on sharpening their mind and their speed than actually bulking up. Yeah, there was actual weight to the swords. So swords aren't light; they are, um, they call them a thousand-fold sword. But of course, like mathematically proven, you can't fold those swords more than twenty-five times. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But they, they would be um, working on the swords for like uh, long hours. So they they would fold the sword, bang it with a hammer, fold it again, and they they estimate that would be done twenty-five times. But the actual banging. So I'm, I'm kind of simplifying it. Each fold took a lot of effort. It's really hard to fold something and fold it again. So they would be working on the tool quite a bit. So it's quite a dense, what I'm trying to say, it's three layers of metal, but very densely packed. So mm-hmm. quite thin, but there's still a weight to it. Uh, and there's certain kind of um, training you need with a sword. The, the samurai is walking in a different way to how athletes uh, walk now. I'm guessing mm-hmm. the Spartans would march kind of like the way we see in the Olympics where you're throwing a javelin or you're throwing a discus, that kind of the motion that we have in modern day sports. The, the samurai, they kind of crept with their feet. They wanted to keep their body quite upright. And that mm. was completely to control the way they use the sword. 
So you see in uh, Kendo or you see in um, Star Wars, the way they hold their swords, that they have to be quite upright and quite rigid because the sword's mm-hmm. quite heavy. So if you make swipes, it's actually quite a lot of strain on your wrists and your arms if you don't have a strong upright posture. If you don't have a straight upright posture, it's quite easy to make a swipe and it's really hard to pull that back up. So the full range of motion if you want uh, you, you want your shoulders to be quite balanced and you, you want to have an upright posture. So the feet, instead of going up and down, up and down, they kind of slide forward. And in karate training, you have uh, the left punch and left foot forward. You move on the right on, on the same side. Your hands and your feet move on the same side. You're quite rigid. You're not the fastest. You, you're not the most mobile, but it's balancing left, right, left, right. So the mm-hmm. left side of the move, the body moves together. You have that in a lot of uh, Asian martial arts. So you have that in karate, you have that in taekwondo, you have that in judo. Judo, if you pull with your right hand, you're usually leaning on your right side. And if you, you pull with your left side, you, your feet's moving to the left side. You kind of, your hands and feet move in the same direction. I think it's that moving the entire body in, in the same direction. Where in the, I notice on the Western side, we kind of twist. So you have in boxing, kickboxing, you, you want to twist. You don't want to use the same side, right? So if you want to move the left foot forward, usually your right hand goes for that twisting motion. It is a different kind of motion, but for, for the weighted weaponry, works very different to punching and kicking. So we know the samurais, they trained a lot in their, their sword fighting, but they equally trained a lot in their bow and arrow. So um, training would have looked very, very different, I think, for the samurais. I think, uh, I'm guessing that they wouldn't be uh, physically as strong as the Spartans, not, not athletically like the Spartans, because their, their range of motion, their training, they're fo- focusing completely, like you said, on the mind and just on the swordsmanship, bow and arrow, horse riding, different syllabus. They wouldn't have your big shield and, and, and long spear. Okay, do you know if the if the samurai training also involved uh, doing uh, uh, meditation and sort of breath work? Meditation and breath work was done uh, for everyone. So that would be the morning routine. Before you start anything, you do the meditation first and then the exercises. Then, and then was the physical it... exercises. So the physical exercises, uh, what little I know about the samurai training, and I heard it was uh, wooden sticks instead of swords, right? And straw bags where they would train against. You you have that in kendo, but uh, it's not actually proven whether they trained in the same way uh, for the samurai days. The samurai days, more so on horseback and firing arrows at a target. Whereas in kendo, you have the comfort having those... Um, straw rolled up in a pillar and trying to slice that in half and getting a really nice clean strike that that's that's more in in kendo so um the density of that straw pillar would represent a person and having a nice clean strike you have to have the timing and accuracy and there's a lot more skill than just brute strength a bit like you make a golf strike you could be really strong you could hit a ball and you don't know how to hit a certain angle you don't know how to hold the golf club in a certain way, you might not get as beautiful as a clean 
strike. True. Yeah. So like a really good golf player might not be a really strong physical gym person. So I think with weapon training, there's always a kind of like technical more than brute strength, more than physical aspect. And I summarize, I think they're going more so for the technical part or more for the sword fighting part. I'm sure some of the stuff I've read on Summarize, uh, you can correct me on this, is that they had certain chores to do, certain traditions based on the era um, and the region that had sort of different outlook. So some of the Samurai traditions um, forbade sort of going and burning villages, looting, plundering, all that. Is that true? It, it goes by the class and it goes by the clans and it goes by what the... It, uh, to summarize it goes goes to summarize to, to to conclude it would go go by what your lord told you to do you oh. you'd be working on the instruction to serve the lord if the lord says pillage the next village then you go for it uh oda nobunaga uh one of the m- most famous samurais of all time <clears throat> he, he he carried a gun all the time he like he liked using guns because uh, rifles are brought in um from uh the netherlands regions from europe uh, from missionaries so you, you have christian missionaries traveling around the world and one thing that they brought to japan was the guns so they, they brought the bible along uh, and the japanese was like oh i really really like your weapons like we like your the cannons on your ships and we like your guns they really really like the guns so um the missionaries taught the japanese how to build guns and cannons they didn't have all the parts they took their guns apart and the japanese engineers they kind of um did reverse engineering so they took everything apart and tried to build it again but didn't work as well didn't function as well so they shipped more gun makers and cannon makers from europe to japan to teach them how to make guns and uh, the samurai unlike in the movie they weren't shy with weapons so if they had a really good weapon they would incorporate that in their unit subject to costs and uh, technology so the costs and the technological restraints were the only restraints they personally didn't have um they, they they respected their weapons but they respected all their tools they weren't stubborn on the sword if they had a bow and arrow they'd use it if they had a gun they'd use it so you would have samurais riding with, with guns on their back that was quite common like oda nobunaga had that um, it makes logical sense to me i think because you know with them being a military force this real romantic idea of of uh, having a sword fight and it being, you know, an equal battle, it's, it's great, you know, it's, it sounds very honourable, but if you're a military force, you want to use your advantages and you want to win. You're not interested in seeing who's the better swordsman. Yeah. So, um, Oda, he, back to Bear's question, um, is it, about the, the target of the conquest, uh, trying to make a good invasion. He did have... Um, a neighboring town which was guarded by uh, these monks a monastery it was a monastery heavy uh buddhist heavy uh town and they they had like warrior monks they had buddhist warrior monks in, in japan and oh they killed every one of them yeah yeah it, they, they put up a really good fight apparently but uh oh they asked for everyone to be slaughtered in the town women and children not to be spared so you actually had the women and children trying to make an argument saying that oh but we can't possibly be your enemy. We have to be your allies because we're only women and children. And, and Oda's command was like, no, everyone gets slaughtered. 
take out the whole village, take out the whole town. It was a big town. So going back to uh, Bear's query on the code of conduct, the, the only code of conduct for the samurai was to follow your Lord's command. And so to serve as that function. So again, it's very similar to modern day uh, like rules of engagement. Although the rules of engagement would never be go and slaughter these women and children, but you might have different roles for different uh, places under different mm -hmm. leaders and stuff. Yeah, it's the follow instruction, isn't it? it yeah, is, yeah. Rather than not have your fantasy and romantic ideas of, of what you think is right and wrong, it is more like serving the military command, and that that can't can't be forsaken. M military command rules over everything. Yeah, definitely, and and obviously, you know, the the generals or or in those days, maybe the the shoguns or whatever, they they've got a an idea of the bigger picture, so they might be aware of something that you're not, and so therefore they would set the rules based on that. Yeah, based on their conquest, what they what their target is. Yeah, there's so much stuff. I was having a quick look this afternoon, but there's so much stuff as well. Like you don't know what's true and what's not, and then you know some of it. I think is just made up. People trying to make, make own, romantic sell ideas. their own training programs. Probably, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, this yeah, is what yeah. this is my Spartan training program. It's actually got nothing to do with it at all. That's what I was asking um, Sam. I think we don't have much clarity on how they trained. We no. just guess through the Olympic Games that they were quite athletic. Um, yeah. Like, like the discus throwing, javelin throwing, that's always been around, right? The shot put, they're, they're um, Greek inventions. Yeah, so, and, and they, they seems to make logical sense. They seem like things that would would make sense for, you know, for a battle. But the samurais didn't, I don't think they did the long jump and the javelin throw. Like it was a different kind of um, uh, style of fighting. Where... But what you were saying about just practicing their swordsmanship or, you know, I, I think it's that, that functional training of just do what you need to do in a battle, but practice it over and over, you know, so therefore you, you're building the fitness to do it, but also that muscle memory at the same time. Yeah. So that seems to make sense to me. And, and I don't see why any group of warriors wouldn't do that, you know, for, throughout history. Accessory training is great, but it can't be doing what you need to be doing. Yeah, there's you can make plans all day, but execution is the most. Um, it, it's really hard to rehearse for a plan, right? You, you have to just. It is it, is a difficult one, um, like all martial arts. Like how how can you get the implementation practice? That so you can rehearse drills and carters and and the like, but. Nothing comes close to a real fight, or the experience of a real fight. No, and, and I suppose, well, something that we would do is try. You try and think of any possible thing that could go wrong, and then rehearse that as well. So uh, you could compare it to, you know, say something that we know about nowadays, like an MMA fight. Let's say if you were to jump in the cage and you were going to say, right, I'm going to do a double leg takedown, and then uh, I'm going to get. I'm going to pull, I'm going to get him in the guard and then I'm going to do a triangle and that's all you practice the whole time. And then your double leg takedown doesn't work. That's it. You've not planned for anything else. So you're stuffed. <laughs> so you need to plan for all these different eventualities. You can't just concentrate on one course of action or one plan. Yeah. Military is a complex system, right? So you have archers, you have cavalry, you have spearmen, pikemen, uh, you have yeah. the guard. Uh, what I wanted to check with Sam is that for for Spartans, they all seem to be one function, part of that armoured 
and, and this that that unit that every I'm not sure if they did, had different positions. Uh, yeah, it's. I would be surprised if they didn't have some kind of archers or anything like that because we know that they definitely came under fire from archers. It would be strange if they didn't have any kind of way to retaliate. But they had their spears. Uh, sorry, they had their, their shields, don't they? Yeah, but that's uh, like more of a defensive thing, isn't it? Yeah. There needs to be a way to counter attack. Yeah. Well, they yeah. Could do some um, spear throwing, I guess. Yeah, that'd be quite. That'd, that'd be a range so. attack. It won't be a very far range attack. But you're not. You don't carry many spears, do you? You need some something with. <laughs> you throw two. That's it. Like, oh, I'm out of ammo. I missed it twice. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go it. back and get some more. It's just six <laughs> days walk. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, it would surprise yeah. me. But then you know, like all I know is from the films, really, and it <clears> seemed like they didn't. They just sort of fought. Hand to hand, yeah. but if I was the the, let's take the you know the classic three hundred film for example. If I was in the the shoes of the Persians, I just would have fired arrows at them all day, and I wouldn't have gone near them. I sort of said, "We'll just keep firing arrows." Okay, you know, we're getting a couple each time. Just keep going. Yeah. So we, what's we the don't point really in engaging know. them? Yeah, we, we we guess what a Spartan fight and a samurai fight would have looked like. Uh, most people guess kendo, and then it. it I guess it didn't look very much like Kendo, especially with the heavy armor. You you can't really move in that kind of um, dual, exciting way. You just be hacking each other with, with heavy armor. It looks a lot messier than than what you have on a one to one sword sword fight. How heavy um, was their armor? Do you know? Lighter than uh, uh, the European knights by a lot. Yeah. So they, they did have because... metal plates, but they're small metal plates, thin, uh, compact, and they weave together with ropes. Because so, so I mean, you do learn to move in it. Yeah, they I learned to swim in it as well. They, they, had, they didn't swim like a, a proper swimming session, but they, if there was a river, they, they learned how to get through that. Wow. Yeah, with, with all the swords and, and the armor, the armor plates. They, yeah. they could swim through it. But yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they learnt to move pretty well in it, and especially if you're against someone else in the same, in a similar sort of armor. Yeah, they, they chose quite heavy type armor. Uh, Samurais are completely covered up. But it makes sense if you're, you know, a cavalry type. You know, if you're on a horse, then why not, you know, protect yeah. yourself as well as possible. For the triple S, um, the only one that we know ex- that that's still around. Uh, the training institution, so the Shaolin, um, we still know what they look like because they're, they're still around. Uh, how close it is to the original Shaolin, that's up for debate. But they're still an in- institution that they have historical artifacts and manuals and the training manuals are still from the past. So mm. we, we kind of know what that looks like. So when you first start in the Shaolin, uh, they all learn the first form, the 18 low-hand palms or that uh, Shaolin 18 are hat palms. So they're, they're training that you have this quite long um, fist form. Um, Japanese, they call it the kata. You have a really long um, fist form that, that all the beginners learn. And you have the um, Shaolin tendon reversal method, which is a lot of stretching. So it's a lot easier training that style when, you, when you're a child. You can still train it as an adult, but the stretching... Uh, they really overstretch you so that they don't have this concept of uh, 
uh, kind of moderate stretching, they, they go quite extreme. They, they force everyone to do the splits. But having the whole day to do that, uh, it, I guess it makes it a lot easier. You dedicate the whole day to the training. Mm. So seven days a week training. The only thing close to that would be Olympic full-time athlete. Full-time pro athlete would be the only uh, only opportunity close enough to train that much. You train um, 5 a.m. in the morning, 5 a.m. start, but you, you finish a lot earlier. Uh, training finishes at 6 p.m. with uh, lunch breaks, breakfast breaks, and nap breaks in the, throughout the day at intervals. Uh, you train your, your fist form, so a bit like uh, your karate style where you, you, you do the set kind of pattern movement, you do your stretching, you do the weapons-based training, and... Um, I guess it's a whole different system to the military. I've not seen Shaolin formations, not seen group formations, but we've not seen that with the Samurais as well because they're not around anymore. We only see Kendo, which is one-to-one kind of in- individual independent training. The Shaolin, you-, you see them with the sticks, but it's not choreographed in a special formation. So they're only standing next to each other. As but they weren't a, a military force at any point though, were they? They they did fight against pirates and there were one point where they had uh, some small skirmishes. They did fight um, alongside the army, and uh, according to records, they they performed extremely well. Right. Uh, then you have to kind of compare at the time that they were elite fighting force because they all they do is train all day. Uh, who the opponent was? So in ancient times, peasants would just get not like the class system in uh, feudal Japan and not like the Spartan system where you get you get picked by elimination. For, for the Chinese army, it was whichever warlord was in place, they take over like a, a large piece of land, a lot, a lot of villages, and make the rural people uh, enlist the males. The males would just get enlisted. So in ancient times, you would have like 13, 14-year-olds in armor. You see like... Um, the, the ancient armor, like some artifacts are still around. They, they have like a one-size-fits-all armor. And you would have like a, a 14, 15-year-old enlisted with kind of minimal experience. And it's just a numbers game with the Chinese army, the ancient Chinese army. Yeah. It's different times, though, isn't it? I mean, people were married and stuff at, at that age. Uh, and... I don't know. You always see, like, if you visit like old castles and stuff, the the doorways are all smaller. You yeah, know, the life expectancy was a lot shorter. I don't know. You know, fourteen might be the equivalent of like a middle age nowadays. I doubt. It. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, if like, you're only living to sort of forty or fifty, then fourteen, you, you're almost halfway through your life. Yeah, like the the Shaolin were just training all day long. Um, yeah. I don't know what battle they had, like what their opponent was, because um, back in ancient China, once a warlord takes over a place, they make the males into part of their army. They make the peasants part of the army. So we don't really know how to judge that training if peasants were just given armor to wear and just instructed to march on. Um, it seemed like if you if you study ancient Chinese kind of armies, it was mostly based on the size of like 100,000, 200,000, um, like 50,000, 10,000 be too small a unit. Like Units start like from 100,000 on, 50,000 on. Yeah. So 
I think it's more of a numbers game rather than like a, a quality. Oh, you have a small unit, you have a strategy and you have, yeah. But the strategy will be around like controlling a lot of people. It's a completely different strategy, different game. Interesting. I mean, it, I, I don't think much has changed. Obviously, they've got much better technology and stuff nowadays, but it still is massively a numbers game, you know. And not just them; in Russia's the same. But it, but it works. You know, if you, you've got it such a, a huge amount of numbers, then it almost rules out the 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 point of having a quality unit. Mm. I'm not saying they don't have quality units because you know they, I'm sure they do. Uh, you know, Russia certainly they've got things like the Spetsnaz and stuff like that. But, however, still the bulk of their their military is based upon numbers. I mean, they've got more tanks than probably we've got people. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Shaolin did fight against the pirates uh, to protect the coast in the 16th century, uh, and there, there were other accounts that they did fight uh, normal battles uh, in in war, but that's up disputed whether like why would the the local kings at the time why would they enlist Shaolin warriors to fight in there on the battlefield doesn't make too much sense and uh you see in Shaolin training they never have um they never they're never on horses unless people back then everyone knew how to ride a horse like we drive a car now unless it was something like that but what the Shaolin did have they, they had a horse stance which was derived from military training so the Mongols were always on horses. Ancient time knights are always on horses. And they're not really sitting on their saddle, right? Like the Mongolians, they didn't even have saddles on the horses. They didn't have saddles on the horseback. It's more clamping the, the two feet on the side of the horses mm. and being in that kind of squatting position. So you're kind of squatting all the time. And having really strong legs is like the foundation for your physical training in any sport. Because uh, that's like the roots. The Shaolin, they call it, the, you're training your roots. You plant your feet down. And the way you generate your punch or any kind of strike really comes from your feet. You drive from your feet. So if you have weak feet, your, 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 your legs aren't trained, you skip leg day, then none of your strikes really work. So out of, um, I say, the triple, when we talk about triple S training, the Shaolin, they really had a lot of punches and kicks. That's quite apparent in their form, the way they train. Punches and kicks were really, really apparent. Yeah, it's it's interesting how they would apply that in a military sense, and especially if they've uh, if they won't take a life as well. Yeah, but they're, they're masters at the staff. That was their key weapon because we were saying last time they don't have a blade on their staff, but um, staff strikes were really effective uh, in battle. Uh, so that in uh, the, the real samurai, Musashi Miyamoto, he killed people with wooden wooden swords before. So just because it, if it didn't have a blade on it, they strike you in the head, they could still crack your skull open with a wooden wooden object, yeah, uh, wooden weapon. So I guess, I guess the Shaolin staff, like, it, it could kind of be formidable. I still can't picture it. It's just really not clear how you'd see them charging with horses in, in, a, in an actual battle. So I, I still can't picture that very well. But but the yeah. training was legit. Like they, they 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 trained punches and kicks, uh, huge on the flexibility. Um, don't see them doing anything like javelin or not so much throwing. So the Shaolin really on the rope dart, on the spear, the broadsword, the staff, 
mainly the staff. I, I've not seen any kind of um, aerial kind of weapons, anything like darts or or anything like that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe, maybe like small small flying weapons aren't very effective on the battlefield. No, you want something more ranged, I suppose, don't you? Like more a, kind of durable, more like rugged, a like a bow. Yeah. Uh, so you don't have bow and arrow training in the Shaolin. That's something you really don't have. It's mostly form work, punches, kicks, stance work. Uh, they, they were incredible with the weapons, though. It makes me think that the battles must have been fought much sort of closer, close quarters. Small skirmishes. Yeah. Yeah, rather than a fully-fledged, large-scale, epic battle with a castle siege. I don't think it's anything like that. But then would they be attacking anyway, or or is it mainly just defensive? Their image is purely for defense. Yeah, they don't like taking a life. They're very anti-war. So that hippie image, I, I don't, I can't see an invasion of Shaolin monks. Yeah, yeah, it's not something that you could even picture them on, on a battlefield. It's probably the most applicable to to modern day. You know, just obviously not not military wise, but just in general, the training for martial arts and stuff like that. Theirs is probably the closest to to anything that you would do now. Yeah, Shaolin training is still uh, an institute. Um, fame for that mind body meditation. Oh, they did a lot of meditation as well, right? We covered in the mindset before. They, they would pray a lot. Uh, they have that stillness training. They have this training called Qigong, which I don't hear um, too much from. Uh, we don't hear at all the Spartans, and you don't hear at all uh, the, the samurais a lot less where their inner uh, kind of energy work, they call it. And that gives them the strength to withstand like spear strikes and have that kind of um, hard external body coming from the inside energy yeah uh, saying about the throwing weapon there is uh, performances you still get now the Shaolin throwing needles okay yeah me- metal needles they put a balloon behind a glass frame like normal glass and they'd throw a, a, a kind of pin like a needle through through the glass, and it'll pierce through, uh, strike through the balloon. You have that as a performance. So I guess yeah, I think I've seen that. Throw. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Not sure if it's a magic trick. Still, uh, like they say, you get glass that's thinner. The glass looks like a normal glass thing. I don't know how it works, how materials work. I'm not sure you can get more brittle glass. That makes that a lot easier. Not sure. I think, to be honest, I mean, I've never tried, but if I was to take a pin and throw it at a balloon without any glass, I, I doubt it would pop the first time anyway. <laughs> so no, I, I don't care how thin the glass is, I'm still quite impressed. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's a good throw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, either way, it's a good throw. So, yeah, Shaolin training is the only training that we can, we can really get to uh, for modern time now. We can't really get Spartan training or samurai training. So, yeah, Shaolin training would still be the closest to ancient time training. And and that um, the kind of practice of of hardening your your body as well. So, like uh, I know you you mentioned before the iron fist training, but uh, you know <clears throat> I know they did it in more than just their fists. 
Uh, that's something that could be applicable today as well. Obviously, just by practice and stuff like that, you can toughen up certain parts of your body that need to be toughened up. The skull, uh, the shins, the feet, the hands. Uh, they, I don't uh, didn't see much about Shaolin doing hiking, but what they do do is they do do um, the road work. They do do um, the morning runs, and they like run upstairs these these stone steps. Uh, and they'd crawl back down, and they call it lizard walking. So a bit like in a, a jiu-jitsu where you have like the lizard crawl or the crocodile walk or the Spider-Man where you're on all fours. Yeah. Yeah, they'd, they'd run up the stone steps and they'd come back down in that lizard form where they're on all fours. They're going downstairs on all fours. And I guess you, like again, they train their tendons, like their wrists and their feet. I can um, imagine that being good shoulders and everything. Yeah, so... Good, good workout for your core as well, right? And yeah. Small, small joints, like your wrists and your ankles. You can only tra- uh, train that, like you said, going on rough terrain, running up hills, running up mountains. Yeah. I think you can possibly simulate it in a gym, but, you know, if you've got it there, it's great. And, and another thing is just being a part of nature, I think, is great for your mental health. Yeah, the great outdoors. We, we don't really get outdoors time enough. I, I don't get any outdoors time at work so i think that's something that probably we've lost you know the these ancient civilizations and stuff like that they had a real connection to nature and it's great to get out and just get a little piece of that you know reconnect with uh get into the wilderness and uh, for me anyway definitely it makes me feel a lot better you know mental health purposes and everything else Uh, organic bodies is not designed to be in front of a desk in front of a computer sat down in front of a screen for hours on end but that's yeah. what I do all day long. So, yeah, it's really unnatural. Yeah. yeah. You need to get out, recalibrate yourself in, in nature. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Shaolin had the, uh, on the hands part, you have the iron palm. So they they practice just breaking bricks, but they don't start with bricks. They, they practice just more slamming their hands down on a hard object. Seen in modern times, they put a phone book there. So they put a phone book. Sometimes they nail the phone book to the wooden post and they'll be slapping that. So as the palm strikes, hmm. uh, so your whole hand is getting that training. And as, as time goes by, they take out pages as well. I've seen some Kung Fu schools take out pages from the phone book or calendar. So you get harder, harder, harder surfaces. And um, you have all these calluses and your bones will harden over time. Did that with their heads as well. Uh, but I think... Shaolin, they, they do it under quite a controlled environment. So the impact training is not massive impact like shock from, from the outset. They kind of train it slowly over time. You just have to have that patience for those years of training. Yeah, it must be the best way to do it if you've got the yeah. time. The stretching is that they, they kind of rush through. Their style is uh, quite brutal on the stretching. So they'll push you into a split very, very quickly. You get in a box split and they want your 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 body to be close to the ground as possible. You have that gap. They'll try to sit on you to push you down, to squish you down. <laughs> yeah. You, I've heard of like injuries getting from like, they call it bad stretching, but that, that their style of stretching, they're quite flexible. So to, to do the performances, those acrobatic performances that they do on stage, the training behind that is quite brutal. Uh, 
we wouldn't be allowed to train kids like that in, in the Western world at all. They must know, having developed it for, for hundreds of years. Like obviously, like you say, they take their time with the, the impact training so they know that there's a potential there for injury. They must yeah, know yeah. with the stretching that, you know, you can be much more, you know, I'll say, excuse the pun, but you can be much more flexible with it and, uh, you know, go in a lot harder early on without the risk of uh, so much injury. Yeah, sure, it's going to be uncomfortable and painful, but it's not going to cause any permanent damage. Yeah, they know where the limits are. And children yeah. are a lot more flexible anyway when you when you train when you're really young. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a lot easier yeah. to keep it. I, I'm, yeah. I try and do more stretching now, but it's nowhere near as easy as it used yeah. to be. I've seen this um, brutal video that they're doing at the Shaolin Temples where you had these little kids wrapped around a tree. I'm not sure if you've seen that. No, I've not seen that. Yeah, it's brutal. It looks like uh, uh, child cruelty. Uh, but um, they they explain that the kids can handle it because they're quite flexible and they're quite light so what we wouldn't accept our threshold of what's acceptable it's different it's a different training style completely I always think of um, you remember the film uh, Bloodsport or even or Kickboxer where he's got his feet tied up onto the trees and just slowly pulling them apart. Oh, with a little pulley, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They, they make that a lot more complicated than it is. You, you'd never see that at Shaolin Temple or, or any of the institutes, like even Taekwondo or uh, Thai boxing or Shaolin. That, that was just to make that training scene a lot more interesting. Yeah. It's almost his right? trademark, though, isn't it? Like, I mean, that, there's that oh, advert where he does it between two lorries. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you're flexible like uh, John Claude and Dam, then it is not really much of a feat. You wouldn't need ropes for that as well. Like yeah. someone would just push you in that position, right? That like they would hold your leg and they just push it right up until you can do the splits. They wouldn't tie a rope, have all that effort. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, but every every good martial arts film needs a training montage, though. Yeah, John Claude was a he started off ballet, right? It was a ballet dancer to start with. Is that right? Yeah. So they had their brutal stretching exercises. That's where you got all the flexibility and kicking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. But Bruce but, Lee was a was a dancer as well. Was he not a tap dancer? Yeah, cha cha dancer. Cha cha. Oh, okay. He was a Hong Kong cha cha champion. Got first place in cha cha. There's a lot of crossover, I suppose, between martial arts and dance. The Shaolin, they they some people would see that as a dance, right? Like big movements or graceful set um kind of choreographed like a set routine training yeah yeah so shaolin people see that as a dance uh kalari uh was the oldest martial arts that it is the oldest martial arts that we know of from india if you watch kalari it looks like dancing it also looks a lot like shaolin so do you know was there a reason for that i know uh i think it was capoeira i was reading about they did it in order to disguise it, you know, so that you couldn't tell it was a martial art. I, I think the Shaolin didn't do it for the same reason. Uh, been persecuted several times um, in their history, but I think the Shaolin they do it more so because it's easier to train a large group, right? So a lot of people would imagine Shaolin Temple as an actual temple, and then you go and like when they film it with um, National Geographic and all the documentaries, they put all the. Um, the students in, inside the actual temple and you have these like artifacts at the temple and you have all these holes 
uh, on the temple ground, all these bricks crumbled on the floor. And as from like, the Shaolin doing their foot stomp, they have this starting move, their starting form uh, called a, um, the ground cannon, where they do a stomp and then they do a squat position and they stand back up. And they say, like, through the years of practice, that's made all these holes on the ground. But when you talk to people who train at Shaolin Temple, a lot of friends who train there for like half a year uh, or a month training program or several months, they don't, they, they go to the temple, but the temple is more for the ceremonial parts. Or when oh, they okay. do, when you do your TV filming, when you go to the Shaolin Temple, you have like your room, which is like a really basic bunk bed. You have different like, kind of um, pricing for different rooms uh be a simple kind of dorm room and you'd be training in a sports hall yeah to fit in a lot of students so you'd go there and it's a sports hall but i don't think that looks good for camera so for the camera like whoever like oh i've done my experience at shaolin they'll give them the full monk uniform and they'll be training in that little courtyard that little square that you always see yeah yeah, but if we went there, we wouldn't be in a courtyard. We'd just be in our t-shirt and shorts, our normal like kind of the normal training gear in a sports hall. And we might have a ceremony in in the courtyard if we're lucky. Oh yeah, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. But that doesn't sell as well, right? <laughs> Your image is kind of shattered a little bit. Like no, you want to be the traditional. Yeah, the traditional method. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to be in a sports hall, you want to be in a temple. Yeah. That's the kind of disappointment that people get when they go to the Shaolin Temple. A temple, the word temple is just that entire institute. Yeah. You'd be in a Kung Fu Kung Fu sports hall doing normal Kung Fu. But that doesn't sell as much as well. I actually wear um Feiyu trainers that I've got of AliExpress. They're really, really good trainers. They're really cheap. They're not very durable. But um, when I was doing my review, I was really obsessed with the old barefoot running and the minimalist shoe running for your feet health. And uh, yeah, I've got these Feiyu trainers. They're the cheapest minimalist shoes you can get. The normal canvas trainers, like you have your Converse, but a lot wider toe box. Okay, yeah, yeah. I've heard about that. How, how did you find um, going into the more barefoot style running? Did you find it difficult? Our problems, I don't run enough to make judgment on that but I, yeah. I did find that heavy padding it just gave me the picture that it's not good for your feet and just to take from a triple s mindset like all our warriors had really basic footwear it's only since the the modern times with the nike that we have fixed soles right and i guess like you trained in boots so it really goes with your purpose of what you want to do like if you can play basketball i don't want to wear like thin soles yeah, so so I think it, it does depend on what you're doing. So boots don't have a lot of impact. Um, you know, they don't have a lot of cushioning to stop impact. Depending on what boots you get, you can get them that do, but you shouldn't really be impacting on boots too much. Um, but what they do have is uh, ankle protection. So for, you know, on the hills or rough terrain and stuff like that, that's where they're important. Oh, they have the support there. Yeah, yeah. Like your hand wraps before your boxing gloves kind of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but I think the problem is nowadays is we're so used to that. Is it? Yeah, it's great. You know, they probably had stronger tendons and stuff like that back then because they're used to walking in bare feet. But and they had more time to, to train be... like that. 
<laughs> exactly, yeah. And they're probably, you know, they're going to be on their feet all the time. They're not going to be sitting behind a desk and stuff like that. Whereas I think it can be dangerous for us to think, right, you know, I'm going to get into this barefoot thing and go straight into it. They say you need to take a lot of time to slowly build in, especially something for like that running. Oh, yeah, you don't want to be running barefoot. Um, well, I know people that have you, done you it. build towards you, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, yeah. they said it's quite difficult. I, I don't know. I've never tried. But obviously what I have done is run in boots. And I know that it's something that takes practice. You can't just put a pair of boots on and go for a run. I mean, you can, but it, you're going to find it difficult. Whereas, you know, over time you, you build up to it to the point where, you know, you can get just as good at running in boots as you can in trainers. And I'd imagine it's, it's the same the other way, you know, getting to the, the barefoot running. You just have to build to it. Yeah. It, there's something comfortable and magical about walking on the grass barefoot, right? That kind of comfort and freedom that you get. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so, yeah. And, and it's again, it's like connecting with nature, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we miss that way too much. So, um, yeah, for, for training, I think uh, we, we covered everything um, practically. Uh, I wobbled, wobbled so much on the samurai bit, the bow and arrow. I think I mentioned that point like 50 times. <laughs> I think it's good. It, it, it makes sense to me. It, <clears throat> it, it, you know, it's something that I would never have known because my knowledge of it is basically from popular culture and that, that romantic idea of, you know, the one-to-one sword fight. But that doesn't, yeah, when, you, when you think gone. about it. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm going to pause from this bit, but just reviewing what I said, it, is that, kind of romantic idea like they were saying that oh but they like you know they 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 had this honor i'm like yeah but that honor I'll probably put this bit in the, in the podcast the word honor in um asia it is actually mistranslated or misrepresented so there's two big type that there's several different type words for honor that we translated for popular culture honor because it sounds good in english for movies because it sounds yeah. good, that's why we use it like that. But um, the word honor, that if you look at the original context, the text, the actual word honor, um, that translates better to loyalty. And there's okay. a different honor where you look after your parents. That's a different kind of honor. Yeah. There's no like generic sense of honor. Yeah. Yeah, so so when Bear's saying that, oh, like they, they have this honor that they hold, they don't hurt women and children, it's like, no, it, it depends what the warlords wanted at the time. I uh, suppose it, it depends. I mean, like, my if I had to think off the top of my head, what would I consider honor? It would be to follow your, you know, to stick to your principles, I suppose. And then that depends on what your principles are. So it could mean a, a number of different things. Yeah, so overall it becomes, it depends, but whatever it depended on, did you do it well? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I guess to summarise, and the Spartans had their objectives and they did it very, very well. That's it, yeah. So, yeah, the the honourable way was to kill the enemy or or come back, you know, dead, I suppose. Mm. Win, or, win or die, that was their thing. Mm. Whereas if you ask the uh, Shaolin, what his idea of honor was, it was probably completely different because he didn't want to go out and kill someone. Yeah, mind meditation, preserve all life. Even if uh, you have a mosquito trying to bite you, they, they'll say uh, part of like their Buddhist belief that you kind of have to shoo them away, just wave at them. Shoo them away, you don't want to like smack it and kill it. 
and yeah. preserve like all life uh, with a sanctity. Like from an ant to a person, you kind of treat them the same in Buddhism. They tr- treat all entities and life forms the same. That's why they're originally vegetarians, but I think that's changed in modern times. Like modern times, they just take the training out of it. So I think when you're there, you eat like tofu and beans and you're just vegetarian. But I think modern times, like someone trained as a Shaolin warrior, they'll probably go home and eat beef. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't leave the, they didn't live the whole um, monastic life. But then yeah. I suppose you can just take the parts of it that, that you want nowadays. You're not, you're not living that life, you know, 24 yeah. seven. Yeah, you that what what's important. I think that's probably the moral of um, Triple S. Then you just take out the values and and pursue what you want to do and do the best of it. Yeah, and if you can apply some principles and be a good person at the same time, even better. Can you imagine fighting a samurai and he pulls a gun at you. <laughs> You're like screwed. <laughs> I just keep thinking of that scene uh, from. Uh, Indiana Jones, and nothing to do with samurais, I know, but you know, when the guy oh, comes out, he does all his sword, flashy yeah. sword he's got his two tricks, around. Yeah. just shoots him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's what the samurai were more like then. Like, I guess that's practical, and you, that didn't get represented much for, for popular culture. No, it's not got the same romantic ideal, but like I say, from a military perspective, you're not interested in it's you know finding out who is the better warrior you're interested in winning the fight you know so the idea is that you use all your advantages I saw a really good movie yeah the other day Roroni Kenshin it's not a new movie 2012 okay yeah I think I'm not sure it's three parts it's part one part two definitely two parts it's based on the uh, anime it's a really good movie like the choreography and that is amazing no, it's one of the best sword fights I've ever seen because it's fast paced. Yeah, and the swordsmen are moving like different angles; they're going low and high. Usually, they they stand in that kind of Star Wars stance. Uh, yeah, yeah, and they they just want to make the single strike win. But this one is kind of fast and furious, and they're going up and down. It's, it's they're they're running a lot. They're on their feet a lot. They're moving around a lot, and they do the the large scale battles quite well. Right. So. Yeah, I get a lot of hatred for saying this. I had an argument with a friend. He's like, oh, we can't be friends because you don't like samurai movies. He likes all the samurai movies. But yeah. I don't like the fight choreography where the bad guys, they kind of hold their arms up, don't they? And they go, ah, and they scream for ages. And they're kind of queuing up, getting killed. Right? They don't rush in at the same time. They never stand around it and shout. I find yeah. it's, yeah, but that happens a lot in, in any kind of films, I think. It's all for dramatic purposes and and also you know you want it to look cool don't you like uh, i always like the, the thing the classic thing from samurai films i think is uh that thing where you see the three you know the strikes on a, a number of different people usually three different people they're surrounded by and no one goes down until he just taps the sword and then all three drop at the same time oh the stylistic kind of like, yeah even for the choreography applies on the dying you have to choreograph the dying so it looks cool i mean even from a basic physics stance you know it makes no sense but it does look cool feels good it feels good yeah so he puts his sword back in and then they all drop (laughs) yeah yeah, motionless and then he he puts the sword back in the sheath and then they'll fall yeah yeah that, that that is cool the way um their swords are designed uh 
because it's meant to be the sword strike happens like a gunshot where you pull out the sword and you swipe at the same time. Right, that's okay, why it yeah. curves like that. That's why um, the later samurai is for, for part of their fashion, they had straight swords and they were told to, to move back to curved swords. But they were so far away from the battlefield as that they became the kind of like bureaucratic class. They, they had straight swords because they, they, it was fashionable at the time to carry straight swords. But you know, the swords should always be slightly curved. So when it's like a it's like a gun duel, like a gunslinger, where the first person to make them move, the quicker person wins. It's yeah. a sword swipe, but one swipe you're finished, right? Kind of like a gunfight. Uh, when they pull that sword out, when it's curved, you can pull it and strike at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So they have that in samurai movies. They got that bit quite. They, they represented that bit really nice. And we do a similar thing with our pistol training. Obviously, if you if you pull your pistol. It's usually because you're in trouble, you know, your rifles died or something at a point where you're, you need to be firing right now. So you go for the pistol and, and as you pull it, it should be pointing towards the enemy, you, basically from the second. So even while it's still down by your side, before you've brought it up to aim properly, it should be pointing at the enemy straight away. So if you need to, if he's on top of you, you can take a shot right away. It's a similar thing. Like Getting a quick up. draw. It, it pretty much, yeah. Yeah, the cowboy. <clears throat> the cowboy kind of stance <laughs> at your hip. It's sort of, yeah. Although you want to get it out in front of you as quickly as possible, but you just point it straight away so that if needs be, you know, it's that muscle memory again. You've got it pointing at them immediately. You're not sort of sweeping it up. They call it like, you know, like a similar motion to like bowling or something where you could sweep it up. But then, you know, for most of that oh, movement, sweet. it's not pointing at the, at the enemy. You want to have it pointing immediately. When you draw the gun out, the um the barrel be pointing downwards right yeah so you just change that as soon as, you know as soon as it leaves the holster you point it towards the enemy straight away oh okay yeah you see these movies where you have cowboys firing from their hips that's really cool yeah i, uh, I don't think you'd be trail. very accurate oh it's just for like, cowboy movies <laughs> not like real life maybe you could try to be good at that but it's just you know when you're firing a a weapon that's got a six-inch barrel. If you move even slightly, that that barrel it it, it can move. Change the... the trajectory completely. Exactly. Yeah, and then you you know you're talking about a difference of meters at where the where your potential target is, and so you're going to miss completely. But so you need to be even more accurate. So firing from the hip, I think, would be very difficult unless you were close. In filming, um, Hollywood filming, they have a, a shot called a cowboy shot, and it's from the cowboy movie days, where they want to film the cowboy drawing their guns from the hip, or firing from the hip. So yeah. they film from like the hip, the waist level is known when you when you film at the waist level, it's called a cowboy shot. Okay. Yeah, and then when you see the older kung fu movies, like the Shaw Brothers, the Bruce Lee movies, they're a lot further away. You right. want to see the feet. You want to see the, how the feet moves, the stance work. You want to see like one stance because that's how you differentiate different styles. You have like the tiger stance or the mantis stance, and they play different roles, right? Like, in real life, they train the same kung fu, but in in the movies, to differentiate between one school and another school, you see the footwork, and they kind of make it very expressive. So the the camera is a lot further away. You see where the feet are. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a lot harder to to act like perform like that. So you see, like John Wick, the way that they fight nowadays, it's a lot closer. 
you don't want to make them do all the squatting and then the feet work. Yeah, yeah. I think that you can make it more dramatic as well. Like, uh, you know, John Wick's often fighting multiple people. I reckon if you zoomed out, you would see him fighting, you know, one or two people and the other one's sort of queuing up being like, oh, is it our turn yet? Whereas oh, you have yeah, it up close, you, you don't notice that. Because you know he's fighting like 15 people. They're obviously not all jumping on him at once. Yeah, if you watch um, Donnie Yen movie, um, movies, his, his movies deal with the crowd fights a lot better. There's right. one called uh, Chasing Dragon that I really liked, where there's a lot of people rushing in. And they, they look like they're all about to rush in and kill him. Obviously, they, they never would. Like, no one would ever touch the lead actors, right? But yeah, like yeah. They, the, the atmosphere and the energy feels like a lot of people are trying to rush in. That's one of the main things I didn't like about Samurai movies because they're all queuing up. I really didn't like that. Yeah, I, I, that's just for films, though, isn't it? I suppose they have to. Yeah. You, you you never get training to um, fight that close, right? In, um, in the Marines, you never get like that kind of close quarters battle. Well, like I say, we, we do do a little bit at the very start of training. We do about two or three sessions, I think it is. You know, we do, they go over a couple of wrist locks, you know, obviously if you need to detain someone. Um, we do a little bit, I mean, like a tiny bit of it. It's basically, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu based grappling but bearing in mind you know again you go back to the samurais and stuff like that but we're going to be wearing body armor probably a backpack we're going to have a weapon slung on us you know boots it's just not going to be practical to have a proper fight no punching and kicking for sure that's completely out of the question i think ideally not no i mean if you're wearing a backpack and a weapon and stuff just get on top of them and hopefully your weight will uh will win the fight that way did you ever train with like kind of airsoft is it like that, where you have guns that like, just fire pellets or paintballs? So we have this thing, it's called simunition, simulated ammunition, and it's very similar to a, to a small paintball, but um, you can load it into normal magazines and use it in a normal rifle. Oh, my, my experience with paintball is that it just jams all the time, right? These you do jam. jam. It does because they're, they get their little plastic rubbery um, pellets. They've got paint in them. So they do eventually, you know, clog up the barrel. You have to keep cleaning the barrel out. Um, you can but also only fire them about 20 to 30 meters. So for big battles, uh, you know, exercises in a field or something, it's not workable. But inside a building, you're clearing buildings and stuff like that. It is a really good. Um, Does it hurt for training? Hit with them? Oh yeah, like, it really hurts. Off, you get you get hit, you feel like crying, right? This stuff hurts a lot more than that I would say oh, no. at least 10 oh, times that it re- 10 times airsoft it's, it's it's horrible I mean it's a real rifle it's a 5.6mm oh, it's real firepower yeah uh, and, and like I know guys so they, they usually come in red and blue the ones that I've used um, I know guys that are tattooed by it where it's literally gone into them oh wow so they've got this little tiny red tattoo in their skin it's, so it's, it's live very... ammunition, but firing like a, a rubber cap for the paint. It, it, it's not called live ammunition, but but yeah, it fires out a projectile at a, at a less velocity, but it but it bloody hurts. Oh wow, yeah. But it's good training because obviously you're scared of getting shot, which is what you would be in real life. So it's great. And training. it's not often you have that kind of training, right? Because it's hard to organise and the cost as well. 
we we're lucky we get it quite a lot because um obviously the marines we do uh, a lot of building clearances and stuff like that and it's a great thing for that so we do actually use it quite often it's really good how, and obviously many, and as well like uh, do you have is that five aside can i match it all? well we, we work in teams of eight so you know you would you would usually use it on targets for the for most of the day and then maybe you'd have a bit against each other for a bit of fun or or sometimes you know you'd have a couple of guys playing enemy and stuff like that because you can do you can do some great scenarios where like you know you might go into a you go in for a building you go in the first room and someone's got a gun so you shoot them you go in the second room someone's got a gun so you shoot them and you go in the third room and a bloke runs towards you but he hasn't got a gun so you're not supposed to shoot him but obviously your instinct is to keep shooting oh. everyone you see because you think the building's full of enemy so there's great training for that like reflex training it sounds like a special forces like you're having a SWAT SWAT training type. well we don't do it to the, the special forces obviously do it to a much higher level and they'll do it much more often but um, you know the techniques and stuff are, are similar it sounds like a lot of fun how do you tell who's on whose team though do you have different colours that like you wear a little t-shirt on top or something a little vest top no, that can be uh, that can be difficult sometimes. It becomes an issue. Because <laughs> yeah, you all probably be a good right? idea. You're all wearing camouflage. Uh-huh. Okay. How do you tell who's on whose team? Then? If it's people playing enemy, then they're usually wearing something different. We wear like a black jacket or something, whereas oh, everyone okay. else would be in uniform. But when it's teams on teams, nearly every time I've done it, there's been issues. You end up just shooting each other because you have no idea who's <laughs> on your team. And, and, I mean, I, I want to wear that black jacket though, because I'm I'm surprised you say that it hurts. Like even wearing like that clothing, all that clothing on top of it, all that gear, and it still hurts. It, it depends where it gets you. I mean, like uh, if you look at my body armor now, it's got little red and blue bits on it where I've been shot, and you you don't feel that as much. You know you've been shot, but that obviously doesn't hurt. It's body armor, but you, your hands are exposed. You get shot in the finger. That's horrible. Ooh, that's nasty. The legs, you haven't got a lot of stuff on your legs, you're just wearing that, you know, them thin military trousers. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You wear like a, Life you have to wear like a cup and a neck protector. But apart from that, you, and obviously you cover your face, you don't want to get shot in the, the eyes or the mouth and stuff. But, uh, just get wearing the cup because it just makes you run that much more awkward, right? You don't know. I've, I've always worn the cup. I do not want to get. I mean, these these things. If I've seen people getting tattooed on their arm with red and blue ink, I don't want that down there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've always worn the cup. I've never found them to be that bad. I just wear it. These ones you wear on top of your trousers. They're not. I'll probably bad. have a really cheap version of a cricket, like a not proper, uh, uh, not not a good quality one. Really basic one for cricket. I would imagine, yeah. It's, yeah. Ju- it's just basic health and safety protection. Oh, that's amazing.